support for Latino Book Review presents comes from listeners like you. To support us, visit our website, latinobookreview.com, and sign up to become a patron. As you know, Cristina Rivera Garza is a very accomplished writer, and she has been writing essays, poetry, novels, any kind of writing that you can imagine. She has been doing that. She's one of the most recognizable writers in the Latinx scene in the US and around the world. Cristina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Vale. The first question I have for you is about your career. So as I was telling the audience a little bit before, you are a very accomplished writer. You have won many, many awards. And how have you been developing your career, especially considering that you have two full-time jobs because you are a professor as well? Well, that's a good question, and it forces me to remember things, to look back. I started writing many, many years ago and publishing, oh my gosh, like in the late 20th century. It's already a different century now. <laughs> writing to me is labor, is work. And I'm not saying that as something that is not desirable or something awful about writing. I'm not implying that there is no creativity and much freedom. I just think of writing as a practice, as a practice that I do with others. It's like all traits, like all practices. It requires a lot of devotion, time, energy, attention. And you are right, I have this other full-time job, which in many ways enables me and has enabled me, you know, to be able to devote many, many hours to writing in its own. I'm a professor right now at the University of Houston, uh, where I am directing a fairly new PhD program in creative writing in Spanish. A program that you created, right? That I helped launch here at the university, and we're very excited about it, working very hard to keep that energy in place and rolling. But at the same time, this is the kind of work that requires me to do things that I love. On the one hand, I have to keep on reading, which is, uh, as a writer, I think that's my first job, just to be very aware of the kind of work that my own is in very connection with and dialogue with. And on the other hand, it allows me to be very much in, in touch with um, younger generations, with emerging writers who bring all their brilliance and talent to the field and just to be in touch with them, very close with them and somehow responsible for their training here at the University of Houston. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling. So I guess I've been able to combine my passion and devotion to writing with a job that has allowed me to not only continue with my own practice, but to support writing for younger generations too. So basically you have two full-time jobs. Well, and if you add that to the fact that I'm a mom, then <laughs> it would be like several full-time jobs. But being alive is, is, is very much a matter of that, right? What, whatever you love becomes a full-time job. If, if you take the not very positive aspects of the word job to it, right? We think of jobs as something that is an obligation and therefore is something awful. And at times it is, it is in fact the case. But in these other aspects, in terms of the writing and the teaching, I think it's pretty much a privilege too. Based on that, how does your other full-time job inform your writing? In many ways. I said earlier that I, I think of writing as a practice, as, as work, as labor. And at the same time, I think of writing as an open field, as a series of connections. I don't think of writing as, as an isolating activity. 
I don't think writing belongs into the ivory tower. I see writing as a practice, as a community-making practice in many ways. I've written a brief essay about uh, how writing is not a solitude. It might appear that we write on our own, like in this studio with these many books. But I say that writing doesn't involve solitude or loneliness because we work with language. And language comes to us with histories. It comes uh, already with many, many experiences. And so when I'm writing, I think is when I am closer to my fellow humans, to the, the practitioners of the languages that I work with. And in that sense, I think the several jobs that I've had, I've, I've taught history in this country. I have taught creative writing as I do now. I, I used to teach creative writing in English. Now I'm doing this bilingual creative writing in Spanish classes. And so all of them have played a major role in shaping what I do. So I accept all those influences. I think we bring to writing complex questions, questions that, that we are trying to elucidate, trying to, to pose to the world. And so in order to even be able to do that, we need all the tools that we have at hand, all the disciplines that we have been trained in or that have some knowledge of. And in that sense, to me, writing is, is a plural practice, it's radically interdisciplinary, and being this kind of shifter and connector is, is part of what makes writing such an interesting, appealing addiction at times. An addiction, I think it would be a good way to call it. So is that what writing is for you? Bringing things together, like putting different worlds in the same place and combine them? In some ways, yes, it is. Many writers have defined writing as paying very close, detailed attention. And I think basically that's what it is. Yes. In order to pay attention, we need very different lenses, right? And I think the more we have, the better. My bachelor's degree was in sociology. I did my PhD in history. I have a tremendous interest in photography. Lately, I've been reading a lot about biology and geology. And so I think that all these different explorations and the learning of the languages that come with that help with the writing. Training myself in looking at the world in as many ways as I can, it's, to me, is essential to the writing practice. So would you say that you have accomplished that, that you have reached a level where you are able to, you know, switch your glasses and then look at things from different perspectives? If you are true to writing, you're always starting from zero with every single project. So I don't think it's cumulative. I think every single project requires new tools. You have to train yourself to ask questions in different ways. Yes. Otherwise, you are, you are writing the same book that you just wrote, right? If your previous book was a good one, there is always this temptation that, that you want to try something that worked well. And then the problem is that that becomes a formula and that's not creative. You're not really, I think in, in those cases, you're not really engaging with the materials in a radical way, in a way that elicits a different perspective, a critical perspective of the world in which we live. To me, that's very important. There is a very close connection between writing and our communities and the places where we live, the bodies that we share this world with. If I want to start a new project, and if this is indeed a new project, then everything is almost new. I mean, of course, there is experience that comes, that goes from one project to the other. But I'm very sincere when I say that if I'm really embarking in a new project, I feel like it is my first one. 
And I feel the fear, the excitement, that terrifying thing that at times works so well when you want to try something new, right? There are things that I know, obviously, but I repeat it again. If, if it is a new project, we have to start from the very root. If Cristina Rivera Garza still feels that fear, I can only imagine how the new writers are feeling when they are starting a new project. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I deeply believe that the most difficult book that a writer writes is the second one. Because when you write your first book, you're new, you're fresh, you don't have expectations. No one has expectations about you, but you don't have those about yourself. So there is this pristine freedom and freshness that then you learn with your second book that is gone. You're never going to get that again. And so when you're writing the second one, you're learning that for the first time. Then for the third or, or the other books, that's common knowledge and you have to deal with that. Learning to work with that on your back, I think is challenging. I bet it is. And you mentioned that writing in a way is related to our communities. Yeah. And how do you think the Latinx community is being represented through literature or media products? Do you think there is actually an accurate representation of this community or we still have some way to go? Well, I, I think there is an incredible amount of talent, energy, colleagues, you know, Mexican-Americans, Latinos, Chicanos, Latin-Americans living in the United States. I think there is plenty of talent. There is a lot of brilliance around us. I think, of, obviously, as it's uh, become clear in, in many of recent discussions and open debates about access to, you know, publications and promotions and just uh, being out there, well, we, there's a lot of work to do in that sense. And that's part of the struggle, I think. But on the other hand, what makes me feel very hopeful is that the amount of brilliance is there. The commitment of many, many writers is there. The traditions are there. We can tap on them. We can continue with them. We, we can work based on, on the work of so many others, the work that many others have done before us. So that's not my concern at all. My concern, obviously, I shared this with many of my colleagues here in the United States, that the field is not leveled and that very often we have to do way more work to have access to this, uh, what is called the literary scene in the United States. That's a struggle that we face every day and a struggle that I'm very committed to. In many ways, I think the creation of this PhD in creative writing in Spanish, to me, is a form of activism. When I came to this country, I had only published one book. It was very difficult for me at the beginning. And I think programs like the ones that we have now at the University of Houston are meant to help to accompany the career of younger generations, the writing life of younger generations. And I would like to see that as a contribution to that struggle that has limited the writing lives of many others too. It's interesting because you are originally from Tamaulipas, Mexico, Mexico, and you are a professor. You have founded a PhD program at the University of Houston. You, you have won many awards and you see yourself as an activist. So maybe that's another full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You mentioned that there is talent to encourage the literature that would be a more accurate representation of this community. Have you seen an evolution in the talent has always been there or is it something that has become more noticeable in the past few years? It's something that I've been reading uh, a lot lately are uh, books by young women poets, mostly here from the United States. I'm so happy. I'm thrilled. I've been reading incredible work 
people like Sara Borja's new book, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal's work. My friend Raquel Gutierrez from Arizona, wonderful essays. I just read this last week, and I don't know why it took me so long to get to that beautiful book about the valley and the Rio Bravo, Rio Grande, by Amy Paris, with the river on our face. That is a specific way of very powerful, very vocal women writers from the Latino communities. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's inspiring in many ways. Now, let's talk a little bit about your specific works. I know there are a couple of translations that are going to be published in October. Yes. Tell us a little bit about grieving dispatches from a wounded country. Why did you decide to work in these essays? You included some journalistic work, some chronicles, and also some personal essays about, you know, the violence that is currently happening in Mexico and in some other parts of the world because of the war on drugs. How did you come up with this work? To answer that question, I have to talk about two books that are coming out in, in October. On the one hand, uh, Grieving, Dispatches from a Wounded Country with Feminist Press, and The Restless Death, Necro Writing and uh, Disappropriation, that is Vanderbilt Press is publishing also in October. And I have to talk about them at the same time, because the work that I gathered for those books first was published as autonomous articles that belong to a column, a newspaper column that I maintained for a number of years, about seven, eight years, in Millennium, a national newspaper in, in Mexico. I had to write pieces of more or less 5,000, 6,000 characters on a weekly basis. I was living in Mexico City when I first accepted this job, and I was given total freedom. So I wrote a lot about books, I wrote a lot about art, but when the violence related to the so-called war on drugs escalated, well, I had to pay attention to that as well. And I started and continued writing about the relationship of violence in everyday life, about violence and writing, about women and violence, about cities and violence in the countryside. So it became an obsession and it became one of those elements that I was paying very close attention to. When the time came, one of the readers of my column talked to me and invited me to organize some of these articles, the ones that dealt with violence more directly, to organize a book. And that's how Grieving came to be. I'm mentioning this because this is a kind of book that was thought of, imagined by readers, by this specific reader. I wrote as a series of articles, but I never thought of that as a whole unit. I became aware of the unity, of the coherence between these articles because of the intervention of this reader who became an editor of this volume in an independent press uh, from Southern Mexico in Oaxaca. And of course, once I started to do that work, that uh, curating, so to speak, uh, this collection, I had to do some rewriting, I had to do some rearrangement of the pieces, I had to, you know, add aspects. I did all that work once I was sure this was going to become a book. And the same more or less happened with the other book, but those essays are more closely related to the politics of writing, the responsibility of writing in a world becoming increasingly violent and increasingly difficult to grasp. You're talking about the restless death, right? Exactly. So both of them have the same source, even though the curatorial process was different for each project. So I'm very happy that both of them are being translated into English and appearing as books in English at the same time, which was not the case when these books were published in Mexico in Spanish. 
I've written novels, uh, I've written poetry, uh, but to me, writing essays has been sort of like a spine, the structure, the skeleton of many of the things that I do in other genres. They are not academic essays at all, but they are informed by my training as a professor. They are the kind of pieces that come from what we mentioned before, paying very close attention with the lenses available to me at the moment of the writing. And looking at your work, for instance, your novels, Nadie me verá llorar, La muerte me da, now you're talking about grieving, and you're talking about the restless dead. There is a connection beneath about pain. Why do you think there is this connection in your work? A very good question. You know, I've been thinking a lot about that lately, because I continue exploring these aspects of life. In many ways, I think that the topics, big themes of literature remain the same throughout time. Pain, death, love, pleasure, sex. What we do is that we actualize them, we update them in a way when we write from the present and very conscious of our contemporariness. And so I've been visiting and revisiting what pain does to us. We live in a country that very openly either fears, disdains, prevents pain to be fully acknowledged by us here in the United States. But once we get to pain, once we get to sorrow, once we get to touch that very fragile, very human aspect of our experience, there is this kind of like a Oof, that's too much, right? And I think that's because when we're able to feel pain, we are asked to leave our indolence behind. Indolence is the incapacity to feel pain for others. Indolence is militant indifference. Indolence is a world in which profit is more important than human life. And so when we explore what pain creates, not only what pain breaks in us, which is true, But what we are able to do with the language of pain, how we make ourselves through the sharing, through the rituals that pain also brings to our lives, I think we are making a commitment with empathy, with a radical form of empathy, with the possibility of expanding communities, emotional communities for which empathy is central. And it seems to me that that's the reason why we are so fearful in this country about pain and about just acknowledging that pain is concomitant, is structural in our experience, especially if we are, you know, members of these minority communities, so-called minority communities, uh, especially if you're a woman, especially if you are a black, brown, you know, we all have to go through a lot of pain and our children, our families have to endure a lot of pain. And while this is very true, I'm also convinced that pain, that suffering, that the possibility of sharing the brokenness and the possibility of remaking us with others is very powerful too. And uh, we have used that in our very communities. We have grief when we decide that, that the lives that we've lost are meaningful enough, are important enough for us to organize our living around these absences, when we have accepted that the death of others and the pain of others uh, will reshape our lives, will make of us different persons. I think we're ready to take the world in a very different way. And I think there is potency. And there is a possibility of building with others a world that is not as cruel as the one in which we live right now. I think it could be a revolutionary force for a lot of people. 
especially, I mean, if you consider the times we are going through, yeah. a lot of people are actually taking the pain of the situation and then trying to evolve that into something completely different that is not affecting them at a personal level. Yeah. And I think it's very clear in your works that your definition of pain is not a regular definition of pain. And I think that is one of the most interesting things about your works that you can look at these issues that you were talking about from a completely different perspective that, of course, captures the reader and makes it very interesting in your writings. Now, in the beginning, I said you are a novelist, you are a poet. There are two coming books that you have, Grieving Dispatches from a Wounded Country and The Restless Dead. But you also have written an opera. Yeah. So all these genres, do you have a favorite one? I have to confess that I have a third book coming out this fall, and that's my academic work, which is a history of a very famous or infamous insane asylum that was established in Mexico in 1910, La Castañeda. La Castañeda. But if you have some relationship with Mexico, uh, you might, you know, whatever, however superficial or profound, there is a chance that you guys have heard about La Castañeda. Also, because it became the name of a very popular rock band in the nine in the eighties or nineties, something like that. Eighties, nineties, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I wrote this book from the perspective of the historian. In its infancy, this book was my PhD dissertation. But it's not just a, a rewrite of my dissertation. I included, as I'm prone to do with books, work that was way more contemporary when this book was first published in Spanish in 2011. That one will be out this fall. So I have three books in translation in English, which cover pretty much my nonfiction. I'm very happy and very thankful to the translators, Robin Myers, Sarah Booker, and Laura Canost. I don't have a favorite genre. I am not the kind of writer who sits down thinking, today I'm going to write a short story, or today is my poetry day. I don't think writers do that in any case. I'm just exaggerating. There are a series of materials from this world that I'm interested in, and I try to work as close as I can with the materials themselves and getting to know them will dictate what will they be in terms of genre when they're out in the world. Something that I like to do, and this is very conscious, I try to use strategies that we usually associate to one genre, and I try to apply that to a different one just to make things explode and see how that works, how language would behave in those cases. Very often when I'm writing a novel, for example, and I have an issue that I'm struggling with, and at times that I cannot develop that in the space of the novel, I bring that specific issue to a short story where it's more contained and I can do some more specific work, like an investigation sort of. But it involves this crossing of genres, which has been very productive, very generative in my own work. It's not something that just pops up. I think you have to be very conscious, I mean, knowledgeable about what genre does and be very willing to subvert that. Yes, a relationship that cannot be replicated by anybody else, right? Your relationship with novels will not be the same as anybody else. I hope so. Yeah. The books and novels and the books in general, they have impacted me. I tend to think of them as this very unique, this uh, irreplaceable experience that we are privileged enough to go through. Something that that work gives to you and nothing else will do that for you. What writers have marked you as a writer? 
If I go from the present to the past, I have to say that Amy Paris with the river on our faces. I've been doing some work about the Rio Grande Valley, the Rio Bravo, specifically in that corner of the Rio Bravo between Tamaulipas and Texas, because that's where my family is from. And so I've been doing a lot of work. Of course, this is San Saldúa's territory. This is Amy Perry's territory. I'm reading them voraciously with great care. And so I can say that they are marking me right now as I continue with this work. There are plenty of women in my reading experience. Rosario Castellanos in Mexico is one of them. Virginia Woolf, of course. Marguerite Duras from French Literature. There are plenty of men too, uh, Juan Rulfo in Mexico, David Markson in the United States, Lopez Velarde, the great Mexican poet from the late 19th, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so there are poets, there are novelists, there are men, there are women. It's a very unruly reading history if you want to look at it that way. I read what I enjoy. I have to say that I read a lot of theory too. When it is well written, it's so generative. It's like reading poetry in many ways. I mean, in terms of the impact that that has on my own work. And uh, very often when I'm reading good theory, I'm like, man, this is such a good idea. And I've I've been working with these other materials. I didn't know what to do with them. But now with this idea and looking at this from this other perspective, you know, that kind of relationship to me, that is something that I also achieved through reading theory. Tell us a little bit about anything special that you do in your writing process. I mean, I'm not talking about a specific genre or anything, but is there anything that you would like to share that you do in your writing process that you find interesting? Yeah, very often people tend to think that writing is something that occurs in your head, in your mind, and that somehow everything gets resolved right there. I think writing is something that occurs in your body. And I work, as I said earlier, with materials rather than with topics or themes. I work with materials. And when I say materials, I mean it metaphorically, like the world is made out of matter. But I also say it in a very practical way. I work with materials. I do research. For many, there is this certain romantic view, a stereotypical view of writers that kind of picture these writers as not needing research. Mm -hmm. In opposition to that, I think that reading, as I said earlier, is an incredibly important component of whatever writing I do. Reading is also a creative process and is incredibly fascinating. Wherever I'm working, I have piles of things. Sometimes it's just paper, sometimes objects, sometimes are recordings. And I work very close with that. I'm surrounded by matter. I am placing questions about materials that are physically close to me. So it's like a craft. You take things and put them together in a way. That would be an interesting way of putting it. Hands are as important as your eyes. All your senses are involved, not only whatever you're able to imagine. I think imagination is quite political too, and that it depends on the kind of work you do. It's just that at times writers think that imagination is something disembodied. I just refuse to believe that whatever we do in writing is disembodied. I mean, everything that I do, I see as belonging and as being in relation to specific bodies in a very troublesome and a very uneven world. We're about to finish this interview, but I don't want to let you go before letting our audience know what's your perspective on the Latinx community and Latinx literature. I'm talking about the community of writers. Are you optimistic a little bit about that? 
I have to say, we are here to stay. We are a community that is integral, is uh, one of the uh, beating hearts of this nation. So as a Latino community, we are so strong. We are so spread out. We are everywhere here in the United States. In our language, as we know, or one of our languages, Spanish and uh, indigenous languages, are here to stay as well. Creating these programs, MFA programs, uh, creative writing programs in Spanish, as the ones that exist at UT El Paso, at the University of Iowa, NYU, our program at the University of Houston. There are many other ones emerging as we speak here in the United States. That, to me, tells me very clearly that as a community, we are here and we'll remain here, but also as a community of language workers, we're here to stay. And I say this in a way that invites us to continue to engage dynamically, actively with the blooming of all these traditions of there is enough work behind us. There's a lot of work and there is much that we can do together. Yes. I think that's very important. Listening to each other, reading uh, each other's works, bringing these conversations. I think there is much to gain. I completely agree with you, Christina. I think that is all for today. Thank you so much for joining us in Latino Book Review Presents. I had a really nice time talking to you. Well, same here, Vale. Thank you so much for your questions. And uh, muchas gracias por todo. Y muchos saludos a todas las personas. Cualquier cosa, cualquier pregunta, por ahí está Twitter, por ahí está Facebook. We can, and I hope we'll remain in touch. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias, Cristina. Support for Latino Book Review Presents comes from listeners like you. To support us, visit our website, latinobookreview.com, and sign up to become a patron. Producers of today's show were Gerald Padilla and Rosy Lima. I am Vale Rendon. Until next time. An incredible amount of talent. Latino Book Review.